All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io. But for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. Save money this tax season with Luca Tax, the only tested crypto tax software. Luca's listened to your feedback. Now you can calculate capital gains and see the results using three different accounting methods side by side, all for free. You only pay if you want to access their detailed tax reports. Luca supports unlimited transaction uploads from all major exchanges and wallets and helps optimize your tax reporting so you can max out this year's refund. Luca Tax wants to help Masari's unqualified opinions listeners save even more this year. So use promo code Masari Tax and you'll get $5 off the normal price of $39.95 when downloading today. Go to L-U-K-K-A-T-A-X.com and save money this tax season. Have you seen what the Crypto.com team's been up to lately? Talking about the MCO Visa card. It's a beautiful metal card you can top up with crypto and spend anywhere Visa's accepted. You get up to 5% back on all your spending, plus 100% rebates on Spotify, Netflix, and now Amazon Prime Travel. How about unlimited airport lounge access and interbank exchange rates? So many perks in just one card. You can download the Crypto.com app and reserve yours today. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with. For exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space, check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. All right, everyone. Welcome back to Masari's Unqualified Opinions. I'm Ryan Selkis at 2BitIdiot. Have a very special episode today with someone that I've been a fan of for a while. I'm talking about Ben Hunt from Epsilon Theory. Um, ben is a wealth of fantastic macro commentary of, of thoughtful economic thinking, um, has been early to cover the coronavirus, has, has been all over some of the dynamics at play with the federal governments, not just here, but internationally and some of the moral hazard that the bailouts have created. Um, he has at times opined on cryptocurrency. We're going to get into that and love to hear your latest and greatest uh, thoughts and, uh, and and ideas as it pertains to Bitcoin and, and other crypto assets. But um, for those uh, that are not frequent followers of your work, Ben, um, would uh, would you just be able to talk a little bit about um, Epsilon Theory, your background? Uh, you had a you had a fantastic. Uh, you know, tweet when someone said, "Oh, well, how are you? <laughs> what 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 makes you an authority on on this type of information?" Uh, and I'm, I don't I don't want to uh, you know step on uh, step on your lines here or the punchline, but um, just that context for what is going to be an all encompassing conversation, so people understand your perspective and and why you are in fact maybe the perfect person uh, <laughs> to talk about in in times where there is this uh, perfect confluence of factors. Uh, at both the macro and health level. Well, first of all, Ryan, thanks for having me on your your, your podcast. It's a real pleasure to be here and to uh, talk to you and and, and your audience. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I hate these kind of appeals to authority, you know, which our our world is awash in these days, where uh, you know you have to speak. You know, they talk about the, the the Pope ex cathedra, you know, from the from the mm -hmm. big chair for anyone to take you seriously, mm -hmm. uh, because the the truth of all of this, right? And here I'm talking about the virus, its, it's real life impact and the like. The truth of this is, you don't need a 
PhD in, you know, statistics and econometrics or epidemiology to understand the math here, right? This is, this is high school math. <laughs> it really is. And, and you just have a willingness, have to have a willingness, I think, to uh, think uh, with some autonomy about this. But mm-hmm. the fact is, I, I do have a PhD, <laughs> right, in, in uh, econometrics, statistics from, from Harvard. You know, we don't, I'm, I'm a defrocked member of, of academia. I, I was a professor for 10 years, and I, I left to start a computer company. Uh, so I, you know, not in academia anymore, but I, you know, I did the whole academic bit. I, I wrote a couple of books uh, focused on econometric techniques. And, uh, you know, my field was, was international politics. So the, you know, my first uh, foray into the, the virus was really trying to, to understand the statistics that were coming out from China and, you know, the skinny of that is that the statistics are, you know, fucked. I, I, mean, I mean, it's just, it's just nonsense what's been reported officially. Mm-hmm. And then, the, you know, the political science background, international politics background was, was helpful, I think, in providing an, an alternative framework for understanding the narrative, as I like to call it, that, uh, that China was constructing around the, uh, the data, the numbers that they were reporting out of Wuhan in particular, Hubei province, more generally, you know, the whole of, of China, uh, most broadly. And talk about the, the domestic political, I'll say dynamics that, that, that really drove the narrative, the false narrative, my view, that they were projecting around uh, the, both the confirmed cases and the, the death rate in China. And then from there, I think that background was, was similarly, similarly helpful in understanding, I think, the next part of the story, which was analyzing, again, the, my view, false narratives that came out of the World Health Organization, uh, particularly early on in their, I'll say, coverage of the, of the novel coronavirus and COVID-19. Uh, and, and then most recently, I, I think it's been useful in trying to understand Again, it's, it's not, I think, at the level of mendacity that we've seen out of both China and uh, the World Health Organization, but, but understanding the narratives that have come out of uh, the U.S. government, Western attempts to, you know, I think it's not terribly helpful. Um, the, uh, you talk about this quite a bit in, um, in one of your most recent posts, uh, Once in a Lifetime. This is just a couple of days ago, actually. Mm-hmm. So it's, very, uh, it's very timely. And... Um, uh, you don't mince any words in the in the intro. Uh, <laughs> we we are led by high functioning sociopaths in our politics and our economy, and nowhere is this more apparent than in a war against COVID nineteen. And then you go on to explain, you know, this isn't a uh, an identity politics thing. You know, it's it's about power. You know, you've gone so far uh, on Twitter. You know, burn it all down. Um, yes, yes, and 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 there and there's absolutely um, a strong element of that frustration that. Uh, that it seems to be bubbling up, and many of us have been, that have been following this virus have have kind of been waiting for it, and we're starting to see, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of what we feared would happen. But at the same time, it seems like that is still in its earliest uh, state because most people have still not caught up to the magnitude of this. It's still an inconvenience. It's still what's happening in New York is scary, or what's happening in Italy is scary. It's not what's happening to me and my neighborhood and community uh, is, is scary. 
Um, and so one of the really interesting points that you made in, in this post, um, you know, using the poker analogy uh, mm -hmm. and, and understanding whether you have to get dealt one hand for the rest of your life or whether right. you're just grinding it out and playing the percentages yep. on a night in, night out basis. And the difference in decision-making um, that, uh, that you need to, to, to uh, the different process you need to go through in scenarios like this. Uh, do you want to elaborate a little bit more on that post? Cause it was definitely one of them. I mean, you always write with your own personality and voice, but uh, it was a personal note and, uh, and, and, Thank and, you. and much Thank different you. than some of your economic uh, posts. That's true. You know, there, there are really two parts to it. The first was, I'll call it uh, a call for empathy. Uh, and and when I, because when I say that we are led by high-functioning sociopaths, I, I really mean that in a clinical sense. I, I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, if you could believe that. I, I mean, you know, a sociopath is, is defined as someone who can compartmentalize anything or that, that really does not have a feeling uh, or connection, a feeling of empathy with anyone else. Uh, you know, they, they, they wear a series of masks, really, and, and a high-functioning sociopath is, is someone who's learned to, to put on the right mask uh, for the right situation. Uh, and, and I, you know, I, I say this because I, look, I, you know, I started a software company, sold that, and then I got into the investments world where I ran a hedge fund for, you know, lot of years. And, and, I, and I'll tell you, the, the most successful people on Wall Street, whether it's hedge funds or, you know, the big banks and the like, they, they are, without exception, high-functioning sociopaths. And, and, and it's, an, it's an enormous advantage in these situations, right, that you're able to compartmentalize where what happened yesterday means nothing. Today is a new day of fresh slate. Your relationship with people means nothing. It's just Right, what's in it for me right now? And, and, and what I've discovered over the last like, you know, 10 years is that that same high-functioning sociopathy applies to politics as well. And you know, as you mentioned, this isn't a left versus right thing. It's not a you know, Republican versus Democrat thing. It's not a you know, boomer versus Gen Z thing. I, I mean, it's, it's a power thing. It really is. And, and we have a system today that I think is designed system of economics, system of politics that rewards high-functioning sociopathy, right? It, it, it penalizes any sense of empathy, any sense of being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. So that was the, the first part of the, the, the note, is just asking for people to recognize that and that so much of what we are told, what we are asked to believe uh, from our political and our economic leaders today is a form of, of, of sociopathy, meaning that the fragmentation that I think we all feel in both our political lives, our investing lives, the uh, what, what I like to call the widening gyre that we all experience, uh, where the, the polarization that is as endemic as the novel coronavirus, it, it doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't just get better on its own. And when we are told that our policy towards the virus should change depending on whether it affects old people more than young people, whether it affects uh, people with quote unquote pre-existing conditions rather than other people. I mean, Brian, you mentioned yourself, you've, you've got asthma, right? I, I mean, so 
with with a lot of the drum beating that that we, that we have today, right? You are presented as lesser, right? The the that and I and I mean this quite seriously that that your life is worth less in our expected utility calculation of how we should, you know, combat the virus, and and that really leads me to my second point, which is well. If we reject that, again, what I would characterize as sociopathy, this, this notion that we can and should make utility-maximizing decisions, you know, based on, oh, well, this person had a pre-existing condition, or this person is 70 years old, so, uh, you know, if they live, they live, they die, they die, right? This is madness. This is madness. And, and so... What's incumbent on us, though, is I think is to present an alternative form of making decisions. And, and, and that's what I tried to lay out in this note, because we are so well trained for good reasons to, to use what I would describe as a utility maximization decision-making approach, right? And, and we do this in investing. We do this so many times in our lives. We certainly do it in, in, in gambling, right? It's that you're, what you're trying to calculate is what's your edge and what are the odds? Mm-hmm. You're, you're trying to calculate, all right, well, if I'm playing craps, I roll the dice, I can tell you exactly what odds there are for any you know, combination of the pips to come up, what, what, what number I'm going to roll. Or if I'm you know, playing blackjack, I can, can tell you, all right, what are, what are the odds that you know, this card is going to, you know, the, the, the dealer is going to turn over this card. Well, that all works and we can calculate odds. And so do we press a bet? Do we you know, play poker? Do I, you know, what, what's my bet here? What's my strategy here? Because the, the, the assumption is that we're going to play these games multiple times, right? That, that the whole notion of calculating probabilities and expected outcomes, it makes sense if the market's going to open tomorrow, if the poker game's going to play on and on, you know, it, it's all based on that assumption. If you take that assumption away, though, and I believe you have to take that assumption away when you're dealing with a freaking pandemic, right, and the impact on society that it has, well, you have to have a different approach to making decisions. And, mm-hmm. and, and the decision structure that I'm recommending, it goes by the name of mini-max regret. That's an abbreviation for minimizing your maximum regret. You're not trying to maximize your utility. You're trying to minimize your maximum regret. And it's, you know, you can be mathematical about this. This is, this is something uh, that was formalized in the 1950s. And it's a, and it's a core aspect of you know, what we today call behavioral economics. It's a guy named uh, uh, Jimmy Savage, right? Which is a great name. Sounds like you should be on Tiger King, you know, you, you know Jimmy Savage. Uh, fascinating dude. I mean, he was like the Zelig character, the Woody Allen character who's always in the background of, you know, important things that happen in science. Yeah, he was with John von Neumann, the inventor of uh, game theory, really. Mm-hmm. In World War II, they were cracking codes together in World War II. Uh, you know, you know the, these giants of, of, of economic theory today, you know, they all worked with this guy, Jimmy Savage. But... 
you know, Jimmy died pretty young uh, in his early 50s, and so he's not well known, but, but he was really the first one to really write seriously about this idea of mini-max regret. And so, so here's the way it works. So basically the idea of mini-max regret is, look, if you're only going to play the game once, thinking in terms of probabilities doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Because, again, to use your example of poker, let, let's say I'm, I'm dealt this one hand of poker, and it's the only hand of poker I'm going to be dealt my entire life. <laughs> I, I need to bet that differently. I need to think about probabilities differently if it's the one hand of poker I will play my entire life versus if I want to be, like you say, grinding it out and you know, playing 500 hands a night every mm-hmm. night. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and we all get it, right? It's that if we catch an unlucky break and we're only playing the hand once, we have no opportunity for the odds to work in our favor over time. We have no opportunity for the odds to even out. And so we really can't think in terms of odds, in terms of probabilities if we're going to play the hand once. We, we have to think in terms of just not expected utility, right? But just utility. How does it make us feel, right? You get to roll the dice one time. Place your bet now, but you're only going to roll the bet, those dice one time. How would you feel if it turns out snake eyes, right? How would it feel? And so the way minimax regret theory works is, all right, what are the possible outcomes from my decision? Let's say I've got, you know, it's a simple decision. I either do something or I don't do something. If I do something, let's say I've got three outcomes. Again, I'm not assigning probabilities to them. I mean, they're not, they have to be, real possible outcomes. I'm not going to say, oh, one possible outcome is, you know, a meteor comes tomorrow and blows up the the earth. I mean, that's not something I I want to be, you know, put forward as one of the possibilities. But I've got got three possibilities that are non-trivial that could happen. And for my, for doing nothing, I've also say, let's go, I've got three possible outcomes, non-trivial outcomes. Well, Minimax regret theory says, okay, look at those two decision trees and look at the, the three branches that are on each tree. Of the six branches in total, which one would you hate the most, right? Which one, if it happened, would you go, okay, I can't live with that. that, is, that that's my maximum regret. And, and, and Minimax regret theory says, okay, well, don't do that, right? Don't, don't go down that decision tree that has that worst outcome, your maximum regret on that mm-hmm. decision tree. Do anything but that. Now, you know, technically what that means is, you know, if you're, if you're modeling this out, you take, all right, here are my different decision trees. I want to choose the decision tree that has the best worst outcome. Right? Mm-hmm. That's how it works out. What decision tree has the best worst outcome? Because any decision you could make, any action you could take, it's going to have some good outcomes. It's going to have some bad outcomes. Many Max Regret says, forget the odds. Choose the action that has the best, worst outcome. And I think that's how we have to think about so many things in life, right? It, it, it doesn't just you know, go for, you know, national policy in a pandemic. It, it has around, you know, what do I want to spend my life doing? What's my, what, what's my profession <laughs> or my, and my vocation? It, you have to think about Look, it, it absolutely has a lot to do with how you might think about, you know, 
cryptocurrencies and the like. Because when we're talking about minimax regret, that word is regret. It's not maximum loss. You're not trying to minimize your maximum loss. You're trying to think, what is my maximum regret? And what I love about, I call it the crypto community to, you know, to use a, you know, an all-encompassing very loose term. Yeah. (laughs) A very loose term, right? Very loose term. And I recognize the looseness of the term, but but what what the common denominator that I find that I love about really almost everyone I've ever met who's been involved in in this movement, because I'm going to call it a movement, is that their maximum regret is not, oh, I didn't make the most money or I didn't, you know, do this. It's not kind of a sense of loss. It's like my maximum regret would be not being part of this. Yes. So I I, I find so many people that, that, that are part of a movement that they they have internalized, maybe they haven't formally, you know, gone through the calculations of the next regret. But I find that so many people who believe strongly in something and, and, and are part of you know, what I'll call as a movement, they've internalized this process. They know what I'm talking about when I say that the, 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 the big decisions, what you have to avoid is your maximum regret. And that is, again, not just for national policy, it's for the way we live our own lives. So that, that's why I think it's such a, a powerful way of thinking about the really important decisions we make in our life. For policy, I think it's empathy, you know, understanding that others are autonomous human beings and just should be treated the way you would want to be treated. But for our, these big decisions, I think that a structure of Minimax regret uh, is very powerful. Um, so you touched on something that I think um, kind of drives at one reason that uh, many in the crypto community may have been early um, to appreciate the magnitude of, of the coronavirus threat and, and, you know, kind of how it's informed some of our thinking around um, how restrictive the response should be, how aggressive the, the response should be. Uh, to a certain extent, this applies more broadly to all of your other writing as well about the financialization of the world and the, um, the easy money um, malinvestment that's been created, the, the moral hazard that's kind of spread, uh, a lot of it, the long tail effect of the recovery efforts around the bailout, um, and now the, you know, the, the plunge protection team that will not allow the markets to go below a certain threshold because that is the KPI for, for most of our leaders, certainly this administration in, in the U.S. Um, you know, when, when you think about what comes next, um, we'll go back to the, the burn it all down like headline, you know, that, that, that we can like uh, get people, you know, tuned in for, for the clickbait purposes. There's, there's an element of truth to it, but there's also an element of, of inevitability. Um, and, and it strikes me that the three, you know, uh, the three communities, the three trends are not that different, right? Bitcoin is a response um, yeah. to everything that we've seen in the global financial markets. The um, coronavirus might be the pin that, that pops the balloon, but that doesn't mean that it's the response that is the ultimate culprit for everything that's gotten wrong systemically. Um, how do you think about what comes next, right? So, so how does your mental model evolve uh, given that you've already had some of these core theses? Um, yeah. And I, I, I don't want to go so far as to call you a perma bearer, but it's. No, I'm not, I'm not at all. Yeah. Some, not, more, 
Yeah, but but more someone that recognizes like a structural imbalance is, is ultimately going to have to get corrected. Um, and now is the time where, where all of that seems to be coming to a head. Just what, if anything, has changed about your view of the world or, or your mental model for what happens next from a, a macro standpoint? Well, and I'll try to approach this from a couple of different directions that I, that I think will be relevant to the, 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 the questions you're asking and, and I think a lot of your listeners uh, for, for this podcast. I, what I admire, one of the things I admire so much about the uh, – again, the community that you're part of is the focus on a permissionless, on a bottom-up, a decentralized um, notion of reorganization uh, of not just our system of money, but society. And I, 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 it is so much in keeping with the, you know, my core philosophy, which is, I'll call it small L liberalism, which is liberty and justice for all. You know, imagine that. <laughs> imagine that, right? Mm-hmm. Autonomous human beings uh, that are treated not as means to an end, but as autonomous human beings. Uh, what what I'd also say, though, from a life of, of working in and around narratives, in and around Wall Street in particular, the I'll say the corridors of power, the sinews of power, is that... Uh, while I think that a bottom-up decentralized approach is the only lasting approach to making real change in a society, I, I, I would also say that, you know, the empire always strikes back and that this is not a, um, this is a, this, you have to play, be willing to play the long game. And by the long game, I mean, longer than my lifetime, right? I mean, this is the, 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 the fundamental shifts of society to what I think is more, not just productive, but more um, uh, human. I, I, I certainly don't expect to see in my lifetime. I, you know, the, when I, as I've been in Wall Street for a long time, and a year and a half ago, uh, my partner, Rusty Gwynn, and I, we, we spun out from our, you know, asset management firm, and we started our own company, and we named it Second Foundation Partners, mm-hmm. right? So this is, you know, a direct nod to the Isaac Asimov Foundation Trilogy. And for those of you who are not familiar with that, the, the, it, it's, a, it's around um, what Asimov called the study of, of, of psychohistory, right? The, the way that narratives are used by people in power to shape, um, you know, shape the future, shape human behavior. If you, if you watch Westworld, right, <laughs> there, there's, there's psychohistory for you, right, that the system is, is energy. So the, the goal of the, the, the founders of Second Foundation in the trilogy was to, not to prevent what, what they called kind of this galactic dark age, Right, but was to shorten the dark ages from ten thousand years to only one thousand years. <laughs> so, you know, you look at at I'll call it the, the 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 fall of Rome going into the dark ages. Right, that this wasn't an event. This wasn't you know happening over a year or two. This took centuries, centuries. And I don't know. It takes centuries. And that's not what I necessarily mean by the long game. But what but what I do mean very much is that it requires 
a very long perspective, longer certainly than my lifetime, and I'm, I'm 55, which doesn't feel too old right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is something that, I, that is so powerful for, 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 for my children and their children that it's something I'm willing to devote my life to. My maximum regret would be not working for the eventual, um, I'll say, reestablishment of what I like to call the small L liberal virtues, also the small C conservative virtues of family and, and, and of honor, right? And shame, honor and shame are two sides of the same coin. You know, it's those small L liberal virtues those small C conservative virtues that I think can and will be built from a bottom-up perspective. It's not going to come from the top down. It comes from the bottom up. But I think we have to play a really long game here. And this gets back to my, you know, initial and still fundamental criticism of, you know, I'll call it crypto, right? Which is that so long as the focus, so long as the end-all and be-all is money, right? it's very hard to win that battle, much less the larger war with, you know, with, with the, 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 the power structure that we have today. So I, I, that's my, I, that's my concern. It's not, it's not necessarily a fatal flaw because I think that the, what, that, that notion of, of being part of a movement and thinking about this as being larger than just money is what drives so many people in this community that, 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 you, that you speak to. Uh, I think that really is the answer. You know, my, my beef, I think, is more with tactics than with strategy, if you will. So that, you know, that was a really long-winded answer to your, to your you know, deceptively simple question, but, but, but that, that's where I think we are. No, I, I mean it's uh, it's helpful. I, I I get the gist. I think um, uh, there's two way to, there's two ways to look at money. There's long term savings, and there's you know kind of what you spend it on day to day. For super long period of time and extremely short period of time, Bitcoin is uh, exceptional money. It's every time period in between that it isn't that great, <laughs> right? Um, and, and that's true for tax reasons. That's true for uh, just, you know, user experience reasons. There, there are a ton of things that, um, that make uh, Bitcoin and crypto assets just very cumbersome to actually use uh, for any period of time other than instantaneous and then kind of super long term for, you know, the, the digital gold use case. But um, the, the interim volatility, you could argue, is what makes Bitcoin so interesting at both extremes, because you basically have this natural bifurcation of the super long-term investors, the ones that are going to prop up the monetary base, the ones that are ultimately responsible for the system getting liquid enough that it could handle all the tiny liquid instantaneous transactions over time. And uh, everything in the middle, you kind of weed out the riffraff, the tourists, because they come in during a parabolic upslope. And then they get decimated when the market corrects. And then what is left are you know, basically the cycles of true believers that come into the industry full time and actually start building out the infrastructure and tools to, um, to, to kind of build a, a parallel system that ultimately you know, some emerging economies at first might be able to latch onto. I don't expect it to be the US at first. It's probably going to be smaller markets at first. And, um, and you know, the end result is there is some 
decentralized life raft because the alternatives look pretty bleak. Um, it's it's either you know kind of uh, super nationalist America um, that's gradually closing its borders, uh, whose you know dollar denominated you know reserve status is diminishing. It's China, which is an outright uh, authoritarian regime that, that is already well known, um, and it's the euro, which seems like it's on the brink of balkanization anyway, um, because there are so many uh, misaligned incentives between between the member states. So, you know, there, there's a, a broader question of uh, if not this, then, then what? And if not now, then when? And even though crypto is imperfect, uh, it doesn't seem like you're going to get a set of conditions more conducive to actually growing the utility here versus, you know, just the community, you know, element. I could make the case, yes, maybe you're right. The first decade, um, give or take, was about the ethos and the community development and maybe some of the very basic infrastructure. But if this next decade isn't about um, the, the parallel financial system that it creates, then, um, then something has gone very, very wrong. So Ryan, I hope with all my heart, you're right. And I, I, re- I and I, and I mean that, and I am, and I am, you know, uh, I'm just a fan of that uh, vision you laid out, but you know, we'll do everything in my power to support it. But you can tell there's a butt coming, right? Right, and and and, and the and that's the why we're having this conversation, right? right? Exactly, right, 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 right. The butt is that. You know, I've seen in my own lifetime, um, so many episodes. I'm, I'm really at a loss for words. I, I don't know, I'll call it an episode, but but there really are tragedies, right? Of where. Uh, movements that uh, decide, or that 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 that, that movements that, that that become entranced by the promise of money, because I, I don't know. Once you start dealing with the realm of money, and there there, it's so hard, I think, to disentangle that from each individual participant's desire to make money. And then once it gets immersed in the world of money, of financial innovation, the resources, the ingenuity, the ability of states to co-opt that movement is breathtaking. Uh, And it's not just done with sticks. It's not just done by, oh, we're gonna ban this or we're gonna do this. It's done with sticks, it's done with carrots, and it is, this is something that's been going on for thousands of years. This is not a modern, you know, thing of, of co-opting uh, movements that get involved with money. And, and, and so that is, that's my, my, my core reticence about everything you described, which I'm not just rooting for. I'll, I'll do everything I can to help it. But I've, I've seen it in my own lifetime, I think you see examples of it today, that if it becomes a big enough movement to make a difference for how money is considered by the mass of people, then governments and the, their major corporate sponsors, right, they, they will not stop at anything to, to co-opt this because this is, this is why governments exist. This is their existential issue is to um, tax, is to, 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 to extract money. And, and 
because it's existential, I keep going back to, you know, I'm not a religious guy at all, but, but, but the advice that Jesus said, you know, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And what is Caesar's is money. That's his, man. And, you know, render unto God, render unto us. I've got a secular view of us. What is ours? What is ours? Ours is our data. You know, you know what I read, where I go, who I associate with, what I say, right? What, what, what is ours? What's mine is my vote, right? I want to take that back, right? What, what is mine? Mine is my, my, my autonomy of mind, you know, my ability to, to not be manipulated in what I think, not to be, to be inundated with a, an, an ocean of narrative that is trying to get me to behave in a certain way. You know, that, we're definitely allies in this, Ryan. I, I just, you know, my, my, my focus, I want to try to, to focus on those things that I just mentioned, you know, whether it's data, it's speech, and, and the like, and taking that back. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I just see, I've just seen so many times financial innovation be uh, co-opted through massively powerful carrots and sticks. Yeah, I think it's a, a perfectly valid concern. The um, the slightly different take would be mm-hmm. you're not rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's because you're not talking about U.S. dollars. You're not talking about RMB. You're not talking about yen. What you're talking about is exit. And what's interesting is we live in a world where there is no uncharted territory anymore. Um, and the only uh, land that you could exit to would be, you know, the digital realm, right? Uh, where there's infinite space, it hasn't been settled, and a digital currency should be the currency of the digital realm, or at least the one that ultimately uh, acts as a shelling point for for anyone online. And it's not but necessarily... Right, let, 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 let me interrupt you. I, mean, I just got to interrupt you. Let's, let's say that some enormous resource, some something of value, was discovered on Antarctica, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in a, or, or on the moon, right? You don't think that nation states would carve up Antarctica tomorrow, right? If there was some enormous resource or something of value that could be extracted there or from the moon, right? And, and the reason I say that is that if, if there is nothing of value, if it's not a store of value, if there's not value associated with it, then you're right. It can go on being, you know, unregulated and be on its own corner forever. But at the point where, it becomes, oh, my wealth is here and my, the wealth that, that the government wants a, a chunk of is in Bitcoin. What is it in human history that makes you think that the monopoly of violence that governments have will not be used to carve that up for a claim of sovereignty over that? Well, I mean, you'd have to physically escape and and live in some free state where you would not be constantly uh, fearful of of overarching surveillance of your every move. Basically, what we have uh, in the West and East alike is is just uh, ubiquitous surveillance and and data ownership by another name, whether yes. it's the government or the or the data monopolies. But if you could somehow um, put yourself in a situation where you were physically free and conducting most of your day-to-day life in a, in a purely digital realm that didn't necessarily have borders, 
that might be a path for exit. And it might be more viable as certain nations rise and fall, because there's always going to be weak nations and weak governments that um, won't have the same mechanisms to, to coordinate their efforts and, and actually exercise their monopoly on violence effectively. Um, which maybe opens up the yeah. equivalent of, of like North America in, in the 1700s, right? That, I mean, that's, that's the only real viable exit that you have. You know, people are talking about seasteading. That's never going to happen. Maybe it will. I don't know. Yeah, but yeah. exiting to the digital realm seems much, much more uh, interesting, compelling, and, and ultimately feasible with, with the, you know, more tools that are created in encryption and digital money in, um, in mesh networking and, and all these things that are not there yet, but are getting built. And, you know, and I think I, that's got to be where the, where the, where the puck is, is going and, and where people are building around. Um, or it's just, you know, you kind of throw up your hands and okay, well, what the fuck are we here for? Right? Like, what, what are we, what are we well, we're just running up the down escalator? No, I, I think I think there are real possibilities of creating communities of distributed trust, right? Which is which is at the core of the the in my mind the whole effort, right? How mm-hmm. how how do you create a community of distributed trust? And 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 what I'd like to see is that that distributed trust is applied to areas that are not so fiercely guarded by the, um, you know, the, the, the powerful, you know, states, governments, and, 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 and businesses, right? Because, again, it, when I think about how to play the long game here, I think that it's possible to carve out areas of, I'll call it resistance, but what I really mean is areas of sovereignty, self-sovereignty, over issues, again, that are not so fiercely guarded as money is uh, by the state. And and so again, this is an issue of tactics rather than strategy, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 so that I would pursue a different tactical approach to the. I think the goal we we we, we all or, or most of your listeners share with you and I for sure. Right? Um, it it does seem to me, and I, I'm going to bring this back to the coronavirus now, right? Which is that. Everything you're describing, whether it's whether it's your tactical approach, my tactical approach, I I I think it's tempting to think, oh, the instability that the virus brings is going to be an advantage in fighting this long game, right? I actually think it's 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 uh, very much disadvantageous to 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 both of us, right? To, to both of our tactical approaches here. And, and I don't think you have to look much farther than what happened in, in, in Hungary, right, over the last two days, where the, the Hungarian parliament, uh, and this has been building for a while, right, and, and, but, but the Hungarian parliament, in response to the coronavirus um, emergency, and it is an emergency, gave really dictatorial powers to, to, to Viktor Orban, the, the, the prime minister, where he now has the, the ability to rule by decree, right? Don't have to pass a law, doesn't have to go through parliament. Whatever the executive says is law. There's no time limit on this now in Hungary. Uh, there's a new law that if you spread false information, fake news, as the executive describes as what is fake or not, you're in prison for five years. 
And if you try to leave the areas of confinement, quarantine that they've set up, that's an eight year. This, this is what happens, I think, in weaker states. Go back to some, you know, idyllic state of nature where, you know, you can set up your, you know, kingdom of Wakanda, you know, right? What, what happens is they're taken over by thugs. They're taken over mm-hmm. by warlords and by thugs. And, and you know, in Hungary, is a, it's a member of the EU. I mean, I mean, it's a core member of Europe. So when I, when I think about what's going to happen in the next year and a half in Indonesia, what's going to happen in the next year and a half in Egypt, what's going to happen in today, what's happening right now in Iran, for God's sake, I, I, I don't think it works to our advantage, right? I, I think that the impetus in every country, and particularly in the weaker states, is going to be for a reclaiming of the physical, of the violence, of the gun. Uh, and so this is why I think it's more important than ever that we identify each other in our communities of empathy, in our communities of our pack, right? so that we can fight this long game, this long war, and so we can support each other. So um, anyway, that's not, I'm just trying to bring it back to, to what's happening today mm-hmm. uh, and, and how we should think about this. Unfortunately, I don't think it's a great opportunity, but I think it's something that, that we all need to come together even more around so that we can, can stay, stay strong or the, the, the dark times that are ahead. And I, and I do think there are dark times. Uh, well, uh, never one to mince words. And, uh, and, and I certainly appreciate the perspective. I'm, I'm slightly more optimistic um, for the reasons that I outlined, maybe mm-hmm. not in the physical realm, but in the digital realm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, is the internet still a bastion of freedom? And, and can you ultimately get people to act freely? Um, outside of you know, some of the more restrictive uh, social media platforms, for instance, but just any type of, of peer-to-peer communication system, peer-to-peer um, digital realms uh, would, would seem to be more conducive for the silent resistance, the quiet resistance yes. and, and, and yes, the sovereign exactly. individual thesis. Um, but how exactly we get there, uh, not, uh, not debating that it, it, it could get ugly. I want to um, change gears for the, the last uh, little bit that we have and, and just talk about um, your understanding of uh, the investment, you know, Zeitgeist uh, for um, this generation of investors. Because one of your uh, more popular posts, um, this is water, uh, and mm-hmm. yeah, it's still water. I kind of talk about this uh, shifting mindset where deflation expectations that were driven by technology are now inflation expectations. There's, um, and, and this isn't necessarily new, but I, I like the way that you laid it out. Um, the um, the the globalism that had permeated the the you know, macro economy for so long is now becoming more nationalistic. Yeah. Um, in some respects, that's not a bad thing because now you might have um, countries that are more resilient in the face of issues like pandemics. When um, when today you know we're we're seeing just how uh, levered we are via global supply chains. Um, you talked about the kind of shifting from you know capital markets uh, into you know true market mechanisms to just political utilities, yep. and um, and then just overall how financialization has kind of exacerbated you know all of those trends. Um, what um, what's what's the what's the next step uh, in in financial markets? Right, uh, if if you run out of the capacity to print, if you run out of the capacity to spend. 
Um, let's not even talk about the U.S. Let's talk about some some country like uh, like Hungary. They don't necessarily control their own currency. Um, it's a small but usually functioning democracy. Um, what does a market system look like in a situation like Hungary? And and how do you ever um, get back to normalcy, or or how do you set the reset button? So the the short answer is that for and I, I'll go back to uh, I'm going to go back 2,500 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is the academic in me, right? I can't, I can't, I can't give you a straight answer, right? What you're asking has all happened before, my friend. It's all happened before, right? So, Peloponnesian War. Uh, you've got Athens and Sparta, the big countries, you know, fighting each other. And then the question is, well, what happens to the little countries? What happens to, uh, you know, Megara, you know, all, all these, these, these little city-states. And the, the Athenians, they're trying to get their, uh, their allies together. And, and uh, one of the, the little allies is saying, well, you know, but, you know, you're asking us to sacrifice everything. It's all for you. I mean, this, this sounds, this doesn't sound like a great deal. And the Athenian ambassador says, you know, it was ever thus, the strong do as they will, the weak do as they must. Strong do as they will, the weak do as they must. And nothing has changed in 2,500 freaking years when it comes to the ability of countries to chart their own course, to um, deal with the exigencies of power. Uh, Hungary, uh, will do as they must. Uh, even weaker countries than Hungary will definitely do as they must, and the strong do as they will. So what they will, when it comes to Europe, when it comes to the United States, when it comes to Japan, which comes to, to China, is that there are no limits on, you know, print or go burr, right? Mm -hmm. There are no limits on, you know, we, we haven't even really touched yet modern monetary theory and the notion that, oh, there's not even a relationship between spending and taxing, right? You can run deficits as much as you want. Go on, go for it. We're just getting started, man. It's just getting started. Right? We're not at the end game of this. We're, we're <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like, this is halftime. <laughs> this, this is in the last few minutes of the fourth quarter with how governments are going to transform capital markets into political utilities with how they're going to, you know, transform the meaning of money into mm -hmm. what supports political power. Man, this, this is just halftime. So I, I think we really do have to take that long-term perspective that uh, um, the printer can go burr for a lot longer. Uh, and it doesn't matter who gets elected. You know, it's, it's, it, it's all the same. The last 10 years have been the greatest transfer of wealth to, I call it the managerial class, than I really think anything in history. And it's come through stock buybacks, through stock sales, through stock-based compensation. It's all happened in the last 10 years, and it's a transfer of hundreds of billions of dollars of wealth to uh, managers, not 
entrepreneurs, not founders, not genius, yeah, to managers, to managers. And when that much wealth is transferred to that number of people in such a short period of time, it doesn't reverse itself. <laughs> you know, you know, people don't, the, the, the cheese may move, but people still want their cheese. Yeah. And, and, and I just, I just think it's so important to remember that we really are playing that long game to remember that the strong do as they will and the weak do as they must. Mm -hmm. And to, have in mind the set that, that we're, we're just halftime right now uh, and that we need to play the game accordingly. Because what you don't want to do is you don't want to, you know, you don't want to storm a, an entrenched machine gun nest, you know, with, you know, huzzah, now's our time. Mm -hmm. You know, there, uh, you, you really do, I think, want to play the long game. I think there's a real power of conviction and belief that allows us to play a long game mm -hmm. and uh, to keep it all together requires people like you doing your podcast. It requires people like me doing our writing and most of it all, it requires a critical mass of people who, whose greatest regret would be to give up and to be co-opted by the powers that be rather than play the long game and fight the long fight. Well, I can't think of a better way uh, to wrap up this conversation uh, than, than calling for conviction and long-termism in a market where everybody's panicked and, and uh, you know, short-termism generally rules the day. Uh, ben, uh, where can people find you on Twitter? I'm easy. It's, it's, it's all Epsilon Theory all the time. So at Epsilon Theory and EpsilonTheory.com. It's free to read and love to love to have you on board. It's uh, it's an excellent read always. Uh, I've been following you for years now and uh, and definitely appreciate your commentary and watching it evolve even as we get into a, a slightly darker period. And you can tell for those that are tuning in, if you can hear the background noise, that nap time just ended. So we uh, we just wrapped up at the most perfect time because I just uh, I just heard my kids wake up and surprised that they haven't run in here already. <laughs> okay. Thank you for having me, Ryan. It's really a pleasure. Anytime. Thank you, Ben. And stay safe. You too. Take care. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot. If you want to continue the conversation or troll me. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.